Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Last time we were in Acts, we uh, talked about how God has a plan to bring restoration to people's lives through faith in Christ. And we saw how he desires to use you and me in that restoration plan, right? To be his witnesses, to advance the gospel, and to restore men and women to our relationship with God and eternity with God. That's kind of the theme verse of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We're to be his, his witnesses <clears throat> by the power of the Holy Spirit. I guess you could say uh, we're all in the restoration business, not just Larry here, right? He's got a restoration business. So this is really relevant for him, right? With the restoration business, though, and Larry knows this, comes the privilege probably of sharing the gospel. And uh, that's not always easy for us. That's not always easy. Most of us are too familiar, I think, when we go to share the gospel with these. We have these feelings of inadequacy. We feel unprepared. We kind of have a pit in our stomach sometimes that comes just before we share the gospel. I think because we know that the name of Jesus is something that uh, is so important. It can either bring incredible joy and hope to someone, or it can bring derision. It can bring the exact opposite of that from those who don't believe. And that's what happened last <clears throat> last time we were in the book of Acts. Peter and John shared the good news of Jesus. They had the opportunity to do that as they uh, miraculously healed a man from his uh, lameness. He was lame for 40 years. He was born that way. And... Uh, it gave them the opportunity to share where that power came from, how Jesus is the Messiah, He's the one who can bring spiritual restoration to our lives, and He's the one who can actually one day physically restore us, just like that lame man. We're going to be resurrected, just like he was resurrected. And as we pick it up in uh, chapter 4, we're going to learn some insights as to how we can be bold witnesses for Jesus. Because, uh, and we need that, because just like in Peter and John's case, when they shared the good news... Uh, many believed, many experienced the hope and the joy that's found in Jesus, but there was also some religious leaders who didn't. And we saw that the first persecution started to begin against the church. Remember, they were thrown in jail overnight, and that's where we left off. We left off kind of on a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? The apostles are in jail. Now what? <clears throat> and so we're going to learn some insights from them today when they, they go on trial as to how we can be bold witnesses for Jesus. And when I say bold, I don't mean bold as in, you know, arrogant and self-confident and uh, just kind of an obnoxious type of bold. I'm talking about bold as in confident in the Lord. There's a different boldness there. Not self-confident, confident in the Lord, um, courageous, considering the circumstances that could take place for sharing our faith in Christ. 
And uh, another synonym for boldness is just frankness. Frankness. Uh, Just being straightforward with people about their need for Jesus and doing it in a sincere and loving way. Just being up front with them. But let's pick it up in verse 5 of chapter 4. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. Mananus, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Remember the, the miracle healing that they did, and the teaching. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so, saved. And so here's the first uh, structure in our outline here. The first thing we see is the examination from the council. Verses 5 through 12. Peter and John, they're in jail overnight. The next day they come and they stand before this, the same exact council, mostly that Jesus stood before. And this is a highly uh, corrupted, civil, and religious Jewish council that we became familiar with through the book of Mark, or the Gospel of Mark. If you were with us, we, we, we know this is the Sanhedrin. These were approximately 70 leading men. In Israel, it's kind of like Israel's Supreme Court. They would gather in sort of a semicircle where they could look at each other and then they would have the people on trial stand in the middle. You've got Peter and John and then the lame man who would be Exhibit A standing before them. So uh, this trial, though, is not illegal. Uh, This is actually within their jurisdiction because the Mosaic Law specified in Deuteronomy chapter 13, that when someone performed a miracle and used it for teaching, say a prophet comes along in the Old Testament and does a miracle, uses it for teaching, they had to be examined to maintain the purity of Israel's teaching and their devotion to the God of Israel. So if their teaching was used to lead men astray from the God of Israel, and they were responsible actually to stone them in that theocratical government. And so the question here, what power or name have you performed this in, is a really a loaded life or death question for them based on how they respond. If it's in, in any other name other than the God of Israel, Yahweh God, or connected with the Messiah that the Old Testament Scriptures prophesied, boy, if this was Old Testament, their life would be on the line. Right? But we know that they're also under Roman authority, and so they don't have the authority to take anyone's life at this point. So uh, anyway, that's why Peter connects Jesus with Old Testament prophecy. Do you notice he quoted the Old Testament there, Psalm 118? And notice this, his reply comes as he's 
Filled with the Spirit. Four key words in our text today. Filled with the Spirit. Something I want to reiterate throughout the book of Acts is that every believer in Jesus Christ who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior is indwelt by the Holy Spirit the moment they believe. That's something permanent. It happens only once. You've kind of got a, a chart or an outline in your notes about the differences between uh, spirit baptism and dwelling and filling. <clears throat> the, the New Testament, clear New Testament teaching affirms that it is impossible to be a Christian and not be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. However, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, like Peter is here, is to say that a believer is controlled or being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Those who are filled with the Holy Spirit are not walking in legalism. They're not walking by performance-based standards, trying to be good enough for God. You know, it's not like that. It's not licentiousness. It's not saying, well, I'm saved so I can live whatever way I want. No, they're, they're walking by the Spirit, not by their sin nature. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. They're yielding their lives to God, walking by grace through faith in Christ. Okay, They're yielding their lives to God. They're depending on Him. Bold witnesses. If we're going to be bold witnesses, confident witnesses, uh, we've got to be Spirit-filled. We've got to be walking in the Spirit. We'll get to this later in verse 31, but the Spirit-filled believers, you see there at the end of this <clears throat> our section today, it says, they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness, with confidence, with assurance, with frankness. And so when we go to share the Gospel, we've got to make sure that we're Spirit-filled. We're, we're yielding to and depending on the Spirit of God to do His work in someone's life. Right? And to do His work in us, to give us the words to say and His Holy Spirit to convict people of their need for a Savior, of their sin and their need for a Savior. That'll go a long way, just depending on God. And you know, when, you, when you go to share the Gospel, that'll go a long way at calming your nerves. If you just remember, it's really not all up to you. Right? You don't save anybody. It's the Holy Spirit that saves people, that baptizes them. God saves them as you simply present the gospel to them. Right? You're, as you're sharing with someone, you know it's, it's not just me. I don't have to have every single word perfect. All I want to do is try to make the gospel simple and clear for them to understand so that they can put their trust in Jesus. It really doesn't have to be that complicated. We trust in God, and, and we're confident in Him, right? We share the gospel simply and clearly, and we just leave the results to Him. I had the opportunity to actually apply this passage this week, what I'm talking about here. I uh, just had the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, and, <clears throat> you know, I really wasn't prepared. I wasn't over-prepared, I really didn't get nervous because my mind was dwelling on this passage right here. It's not really up to me, it's up to the Spirit of God. It, you can trust God, you can relax. Um, one of the things uh, that I think is good for us when we're sharing the Gospel that can 
help us share the gospel is just to ask that person questions. Uh, ask them where they're at. Ask them what they believe. I mean, where's their hope? Where's their doubts? Where are they at? What's their background? You know, have, what kind of church background have they had? Do I just asked this person. I said, do you know what the gospel is? I mean, can you even tell me what it is? Oh, okay. Well, then here, let, let me share with you what it is. It's pretty simple. And uh, as you ask them questions, you'll start to sense which scriptures will help lead them to Jesus. But notice as well that one here, uh, spirit-filled preaching and teaching and witnessing does not guarantee outcomes of belief. It does not guarantee that someone's going to believe. Peter here is filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And these men still refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Isn't that interesting? The Holy Spirit of God is speaking through them to these people and they still refuse to admit it. It doesn't guarantee outcome. Look at his response though in verse 10. Let it be known to you and everyone else in Israel that this miracle was done by the power in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, whom you crucified. And then he references Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was a familiar psalm to this group. Uh, it was a Passover psalm. This was what they just recited on the night of Passover before they crucified Jesus. I mean, right before his arrest, they said uh, they, they, they quoted Psalm 118 about the cornerstone, and then they went out and arrested him. And they just rejected the cornerstone that very night. They had no idea because uh, what's interesting is they believed Israel was the cornerstone that was rejected that would someday become the chief cornerstone. However, it's not Israel, it's Jesus. And they fulfilled the psalm by actually rejecting him. And so think about this. Today, we, we, what is a cornerstone? We, today, we build our buildings out of sticks and um, drywall and screws and things like that. But back then, even back into Job's day, they built with stones, and they would start with one large stone that they would set in place. So I'm going to set, I'm going to, I'm going to level the ground. I'm going to set this stone right where it needs to be, and every other angle that comes off of that stone is going to be, uh, is going to guide everything else in the construction of that building. Everything is measured from this one stone. Well, Jesus is like a cornerstone. First Peter two. Verse 4 says, Coming to him as a living stone, as thinking of ourselves as living stones that have been rejected by men, but as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected actually becomes the very corner. Stone, and it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, here's the purpose, so that you may proclaim, you may be the witnesses of the excellencies of Him who has called you. Jesus is the cornerstone that we measure everything else by. He's the standard, and we either believe in Him and we're connected to Him, we're built up into the spiritual house, where the other stones that, that are built on top of Him, or if you don't believe in Him, you, you trip over Him like these religious leaders were doing. They, they trip over Him, and He either... Um, you either fall over him and stumble spiritually, or he comes and he falls on you and crushes you in a sense. That's what Jesus said in Matthew twenty-one forty-four. Right? You either trip over him, or you, or he falls on you. The stone falls on you and just scatters you like dust. And that's talking about judgment that's coming for not believing in Jesus. And that's why sharing the gospel, I think, is so difficult at times. It's because we know how important it is. We know how critical it is. Their eternal destinies are on the line. And yet, <clears throat> another reason why it's difficult is because we live in a universalistic culture and relativistic world where everyone just sort of believes all roads lead to God. All roads lead to God. And, you know, everybody's uh, got their own truth and don't try to force your truth on someone else. Well, the gospel is, is pretty offensive in a universalistic and relativistic world. Okay? Uh, anyone who wants to think all roads lead to God uh, are being really illogical when it comes to the claims of Jesus. I mean, Jesus said, I'm God. I'm the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If that's true, I mean, that's either true or false, right? It's either true or it's not. All roads can't lead to God, if that's true. So our culture is, it's, is, is increasingly against the exclusive claims of Christ because the gospel upsets that status quo. It upsets, upsets relativism and universalism. And it's possible, and I hope this isn't true, <laughs> well, according to the book of Revelation, we know it's true sometime, hopefully not in our day, that there's going to come a time when just saying that Jesus is the way, He's the only way, is going to be considered hate speech, and it's going to be illegal to share the gospel. Because the gospel's just too exclusive. It's like that in places in the world today. Illegal to share the gospel in Morocco, in North Korea, right? In that 1040 window all the way across there. There's all sorts of places where it's illegal to share your faith in Christ. But they cannot stop. And we cannot stop. Why? Because this is about eternal destinies. It's the most essential message in the world that meets man's most essential need for people to be saved from their sins through faith in Jesus Christ and restored to their 
ever, to everlasting life with God, a relationship with God. And that's what, what Peter does here. He can't stop. Peter's bold. He puts his life on the line for the testimony of Jesus here in this passage. And that's more amazing when you consider the fact that just a couple months ago, Jesus was on trial before the same group, and where was Peter? Peter was outside at the fire, and he was under fire from a slave girl. Hey, you're one of Jesus' followers, aren't you? And he denied it, right? I don't even know who you're talking about. But now Peter is what? He's on fire for Jesus. And so you see the change in Peter when he's operating in self-confidence, and now he's relying on the Lord. He's confident in the Lord, and he has the power of the Holy Spirit working in him. He's a different man. And uh, it's neat. He turns the table of accusation actually around on them, and he puts them on trial before God. Did you, did you catch that? He says, you're accusing us of doing something good in your Messiah's name, whom you crucified. So he turns the tables on them. And uh, Peter is able to be bold like this because he knows Jesus Christ. He knows his eternity is secure. Um, he's not living for himself anymore. He knows this life is not all there is. He's living for eternal matters. He knows Jesus Christ has conquered death. He knows the Spirit of God has come. So he's not living for this life anymore. He's not living for his own glory. He's not looking to a kingdom on earth anymore necessarily. He's, he's, he's living with eternity in mind. Something far more worthy to live for than just a comfortable life now. I mean, he has a a hill worth dying on, a mission worth giving his life for, and it's the good news of Jesus Christ. He's going to give his life for it. Jesus said he was going to go in the same way that Jesus went. He was going to be, he was going to be persecuted to death. But Peter didn't know when it was going to happen. He could have had it in his mind that for this message, he, they're going to take him out any time. But he understood to live is Christ, to die is gain. Amen? Secondly, let's look at the council's resolution in verses 13 through 18. They, as they observe the confidence, and some of your translations read boldness, the boldness of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, uneducated, and untrained men, they were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name." And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Okay, so you have to enjoy, I think, the council's resolution because uh, with this man, Exhibit A, standing before them and the apostles just stumping them with Scripture like Jesus did time and time again, they had nothing to say in reply. Just nothing. It was undeniable. They can't deny it. You think, think about this. If the resurrection didn't happen, don't you think they would have said something? If these were the guys who stole the body, don't you think they would have presented it? 
They can't deny the resurrection. They can't deny that this miracle just took place. And in verse 13, we see two observations about the disciples that they make. Number one, they're amazed at the apostles because they're uneducated and untrained men. Meaning they weren't trained in the rabbinical schools. They didn't have any sort of uh, ordination. They didn't have special training in the scriptures. They were just, not that Jesus obviously didn't teach them the scriptures, right? But they didn't go to school like they did in the rabbinical schools. They were, they were common people. These were the, these were the hicks. Uh, country boys just from northern Galilee who had a different accent even. Uh, and what makes the difference, though, is that they have the Holy Spirit in them. And they've been with Jesus. They've learned from Jesus. It's funny to think that Jesus is still stumping the religious leaders through these apostles. Right? It had to be a familiar feeling because they came to Jesus time and time again and had questions for him, and Jesus kept stumping them with the Scriptures. Well, the same thing is happening <laughs> through the apostles now as they, um, as they defend uh, how Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, Acts, remember, Acts is a book about Jesus continuing to act through the apostles and through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. So they thought, we're going to crucify Jesus, we're going to get rid of him, and we're just going to be done. And yet here is Jesus still stumping them through the apostles. I just, I love that. But bold witnesses are witnesses who are just common people who know Jesus, who love Jesus. Don't put a bold witness up on a shelf. Just, you know, these are common people. These are common people who love Jesus, who know Jesus. They did not have any sort of special training. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't go to Bible school. And you don't have to to share the gospel, do you? You can share the gospel with people in your workplace. I mean, you're just average, everyday Christian. Share the gospel with everybody you know. Keep it simple. Um, we spent a whole sermon, I think, at the last half of Acts chapter 1, looking at the people that Jesus uses to advance the gospel. And these were all ordinary men and women, fishermen, whatever, just men and women like you and me from all different types of backgrounds with all sorts of different problems. And different issues that they had in life. But these were people who were just willing and available and empowered by the Spirit of God. God gave them grace to share the gospel. Um, the good question to ask ourselves would be, do people look at us and say, wow, they've, they've been with Jesus. They can tell we've been with Jesus. Uh, there's something about them. They're different. They're Christ-like. And that's the goal of spiritual maturity. Always remember that. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just coming to church and getting more head knowledge, but really applying it to your life and saying, man, how, how can this make me more Christ-like? That's God's purpose for us, isn't it? Do you guys know that? God's purpose for you, you want to know what your purpose is. I'm not going to tell you necessarily what your calling is. That's between you and God. But your purpose, the purpose for every believer is to conform them to the image of Christ, to make you more like Christ. More um, self-sacrificial, more loving, more compassionate, more gracious, forgiving, truth-speaking, all of that. Sometimes people are going to be drawn to the Christ-likeness in you. They're going to be drawn to the light. Sometimes they're actually going to be repelled. They say that the, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay, 
Well, these religious leaders are like clay because they're hardened by uh, the message of the gospel. They confer with one another. They warn them not to speak in the name of Jesus again, not to speak or teach at all in his name. And so evangelism officially becomes illegal. And I want to ask you, what if that happened in our country today? Evangelizing, sharing the gospel becomes illegal today. What are you going to do tomorrow? So, I don't know what the council was expecting, but I'm guessing that based on the way the disciples responded to Jesus' trial, oh wait, Jesus' arrest, so they recognized these disciples, Apostle John and Peter, as having been with Jesus. Remember what happened when they were with Jesus when he got arrested? They ran. They ran the other way, didn't they? They hid. They cowered. I wonder if they're thinking they're going to do the same. But let's look at the disciples' response in verse 19 here. Peter and John answered and said this, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. On account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And so the apostles' response had to have surprised the rulers a bit. Uh, They didn't cower, and they actually used their own argument Against them. I think these religious leaders were used to responding to Roman authority the same way. We've got to obey God rather than men. In other words, the law of God supersedes the law of man. God's moral law supersedes the laws of man. But the, the point uh, for boldness is made here that if we're going to be bold witnesses, obedience to God has to be prioritized above obedience to man. Obedience to God comes first. Why? Because God is the ultimate judge that we've all got to answer to. Whenever there's a figure of authority somewhere, maybe a government figure that tells us to do something that brings us into direct conflict with God's word, at that point, resistance is necessary. And it's okay. You're obeying God and not man. And we just entrust ourselves to God at that point, even if it is illegal. Okay, Just because something's legal, like abortion, doesn't mean we start doing that. Right? Just because something's um, illegal, like preaching the gospel, doesn't mean we stop. We still obey God. We prioritize obedience to God as His witnesses They said, we cannot stop speaking. This is what Jesus has commanded us to do. We're going to do it in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the the whole earth. Their obedience to God takes place first. That's what witnesses do, though, by the way. They just talk about what they've seen and heard. When you go to share the gospel with people, just talk about how, you know, what you've seen and heard, how you've experienced life-changing power in the gospel. 
the, the, the difference that Jesus Christ makes in your life. Share how he's worked in your life. I had that opportunity again this week. This person was pretty confused about what the gospel was and how, how to think of the afterlife. And it was like, well, I was too at one point. And I actually got really tired of listening to a man in a robe in a fancy church tell me something different than the man in the jeans and the Bible church was telling me. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, these guys do not agree. And they claim to have the same book. So what I did is I decided I'm just going to read the book. I'm going to figure it out myself. And I just read it over and over. And I came to the conclusions, obviously, that I have. Jesus Christ is the way. He's the only way. And it's by grace through faith in Christ. Not by works, so that no man can boast. Anyway, um, it's critical that we learn to talk about what we've seen and heard. It's, it's critical that we talk about the gospel because if verse 12 is true, then there's nothing more important. I mean, if Jesus Christ is the only way, there's nothing more, again, than, there's nothing more important than sharing the hope and salvation that's found in Christ. Because if people don't have Jesus, they don't have life. They don't have Jesus, they don't have hope. As a result of their stance, though, look at how the council responds. They they further threaten them. They've already threatened them. Now they're going to threaten them further. And I think the only thing that, humanly speaking, the only thing that saved their tails this day was the favor that they had with the people in verse 21. Uh, I don't think it would have been politically uh, astute for the, the Sanhedrin uh, to go ahead and punish these guys, to actually do something with them, to harm them, because you know they were they they were man pleasers, not just God pleasers, and they were them pleasing themselves. But notice the second response <clears throat> that they have. Number one was prioritize prioritize obedience to God. The second response is prayer. Prayer verses uh, twenty three through thirty one. And this, by the way, guys, is. To me, this is one of the the most uh, monumental prayers in all of Scripture. This has stood out to me um, ever since the first time I read it. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported to all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had shaken or had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So that's the second response. They take the situation to God in prayer. Just talk about spiritual instinct, right? 
That's the natural thing to do. Sorry, I've got to obey God. Sorry, uh, we're going to take this to God in prayer too. And he's, he's sovereign over this whole situation. The disciples return to the core group. That's what they do. Uh, this is probably a terrified group at this point. And, and uh, they just pray. Look at the key element in their prayer. It's God's sovereignty. Uh, they acknowledge that God is creator. I mean, if God's the creator, that means he's greater than everyone. Everyone's life originates from him. And that's what ha- Jesus, <clears throat> that's what they recognize is happening in Jesus. They don't look at the cross as an accident, do they? Like, no, this was prophesied since Genesis chapter 3. I mean, this is what all the prophets talked about. It was predestined to, the, to occur. They know no matter what happens, God's in control. He can overrule. And uh, look at Psalm 2. They quote Psalm 2 here. And it goes along with this thought. This is a divine kingship psalm, talking about God as king. Yeah, we've got these earthly kings, but God is the king of kings. This psalm, ultimately, I think it's talking about the end times, when the earthly kings gather against Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, Revelation 19, Revelation 20, that sort of imagery. But they, they're drawing application from it for what just happened with Jesus, when Gentiles and Israelites gathered against Jesus and to, to crucify him. And what's, what's neat is this psalm depicts God in heaven ruling over all of these puny kings that are on earth. You should go, go and read this. This is a really great psalm to read whenever there's a, a wicked ruler in power. It says, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord just scoffs at them. Like, what are you puny kings going to do? I mean, God's the real king of kings. And note that they don't ask Jesus to remove all of their threats either. Oh, Lord, yeah, you, you, you see this. You know, we're, uh, you know we're, we're under persecution. Just remove it. They say, no, Lord, just take note of their threats and give us confidence. Give us boldness. If we're going to be bold witnesses, prayer is necessary. Prayer is what brings power. You see the power right there in verse 31. He empowers them to speak the word of God with boldness. Prayer brings perspective. Perspective to say that God's in control and I'm content with God's will, whatever form it takes. We express our trust in God. We refuse to live in fear of man through prayer. And notice how God responds. He responds with a good shake. Not a handshake, though. I mean, the, the place that they're in is shaken, literally, like an earthquake. It's, it's, uh, I think it's God's way of saying, I'm here with you. I hear you. I'm with you. My spirit is with you. Even though you can't see me, he makes his presence known among the church. And I think that's fantastic. I love his, his uh, early affirmations that he's with the church and the apostles like that. Next time, he will affirm his presence as they deal with corruption within the church. It's a different form of affirmation. We'll look at more at that uh, next time. Ananias and Sapphira. But the last verse today, verse 31, I think really just brings us full circle. They're filled with the Spirit, and they begin to speak the Word of God with boldness. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? A lot of people today would say, well, it's speaking in tongues. Well, that only happens a few times in Acts. 
Beyond that, it, it, it looks like this. They're, they begin to speak the word of God with boldness. I think that's it. That's a mark of a spirit-filled church, a sign of a spirit-filled church. Are we a spirit-filled church? Are we actively, prayerfully looking for opportunities to share the gospel with people in our lives? Are we praying for them, asking God for divine opportunities to share? Remember, being a bold witness is not anything flashy. Okay? It's not fancy. You don't have to um, have any sort of perfect pat response for every single question they have. You don't have to show off. You don't have to be bold. They're like arrogant kind of bold. Um, you just want people to really understand what Jesus came and did for them, right? Help them understand why Jesus is the only way. Why it's illogical to think all roads lead to heaven. Well, that can't be true because Jesus said this. And he's either a Lord or a lunatic or liar. Well, why does Jesus' death, why is it Jesus' death uh, that is so special? Well, because he wasn't born like every other man. He, we, we celebrate this at Christmas. He's, he's God in the flesh. He became a man. He was um, born of the Holy Spirit through a virgin. And he's God himself. And so he didn't, he didn't have the sin nature that Adam had, and so he can thereby, therefore, go to the cross and pay for our sins. See, he never sinned. Sin deserves death, but he never sinned, so he didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve to die, but he died anyway for you and me. Make sense? Or you should just explain things. Explain the incarnation to people. Explain Jesus. Explain what he did. It's really simple. Keep it simple. Trust the Lord to do his thing in their hearts. Don't overthink it. Um, ask questions so you know where they're at, so you know how to help them understand what Jesus did for them. Yeah, some people aren't going to believe it, even though you explain it simply and clearly. But, you know, there's, there's people who are. Okay? God has people in every city, I think, waiting to hear the gospel. And I think this week I got to see someone come to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And it, the, the, the look of hope and joy in the eyes, I just can't get it out of my mind. Some people aren't going to believe, but some people are, and you're going to give them joy and they're gonna, you're going to give them hope. Eternal joy, eternal hope, eternal life. And if you're here today and you're afraid to die, because you know, you just know, something's not right between you and God. You, you know what's there. You need to know that even though something's not right between you and God, you know you were made for a relationship with God. You need to know that. You were made for a relationship with Him. However, our sinful disobedience, our rebellion against God, God is holy. And our sin against Him has caused a separation between us, between a holy God and sinful man. And the result is death. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. What we've earned for our sins is death. And that's, biblically, we're talking both about spiritual death and physical death. However, God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son so that if you believe in him, 
you can be born again spiritually by the Spirit, just like we've been talking about. And you can have everlasting life with God. You can have that relationship restored through faith in Christ. He so loved you that he came into this world himself and he died for you. A death that he didn't deserve. He took your penalty. So now you can be born again and when you die, you can be in heaven with God forever. If you believe that, look at 1 John 5 with me. If you believe that, look at 1 John 5. Because I want you to have assurance today. The Bible doesn't mess around with this eternal destiny stuff. It doesn't leave you hanging here. Like, oh, if you believe in Jesus, you may have it or you might not have it. You might go to a shorter temporal place to be punished for a while still and then go to No. You either have eternal life or you don't. Look at 1 John 5, 11. This is the testimony. This is the God's testimony, okay? God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son, well, he may have the life. We don't really know. Is that what it says? He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So if you have Jesus, what do you have? Life. Eternal life. If you don't have the Son, what do you have? You don't have life. You don't have spiritual life. You won't have everlasting life. But look at this. If you have the Son, you have the life. This is You, you can't get more black and white than this, can you? This is so clear. John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And I trust that and I pray that that is your, your testimony this morning. You have the Son. If you don't have the Son, just pray, Lord God, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to be my Savior. I need this life that you're talking about in your